is the Almost Awakened Podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right. Britt Hartley, how are you? I'm so good. I was out of town last week with my husband celebrating his 40th birthday, and I'm excited for today's podcast because I was reading, this was my beach read, Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World. Mm. It's talking about how people are moving away from organized religion, but how what are the new religions that are popping up to deal with the same human needs that create religion. So it talked about wellness culture being a religion, and then it talked about transhumanism being a religion. It talked about social justice being a religion. And it was just really, really interesting because I don't know how to do beach reads. I don't know if you ever take a book like a beach read book, like a light fluffy book, but I don't know how to do that. I was still reading. <laughs> if you saw my list on Audible, you would see that I'm like you, I can't read anything not serious it i'm yeah every book has to be about how can i figure out this world and reality and how yeah. to be my best self that's fun for me yeah. that's a beach read for me yeah. and my sister-in-law was reading you know beach reads are kind of like little fluffy whodunits or romantic you know or romantic yeah. whatever and i just can't i can't get into it that's not enjoyable yeah. for me at all so Indeed. i was i was reading about transhumanism and so i was excited for our podcast today this, how yeah, was your week a fun this will be a fun conversation. Um, my week was great. The only thing I was, I'll throw up on the screen here um, yes. is this uh, thing we're doing here this coming week in Alpine, Utah. I'll be up in the Salt Lake City area. Alpine's just outside of that. Uh, Tuesday and Wednesday will be the two full days. I'm sorry. Monday and Tuesday will be the two full days that I am there. One of those days we'll be spending with John DeLynn doing a multi-hour interview. Uh, I'm a little nervous and a little excited for that. What are you uh, nervous about? Because when you talk about your life and your life is as when you try to be as vulnerable as I try to be, um, you run the risk of of saying something that someone else is like, oh, I can't believe he said that. Mm. Uh, we'll see how it goes. But I'm excited, folks. You can get tickets. The URL there is at the top. It's 30 bucks for the VIP dinner on uh, Tuesday, May 30th. Uh, that starts at 6 p.m. And then at 7 p.m. Amanda will be joining me. That was kind of up in the air for a while, but she will be joining me and uh, we'll kind of talk for a minute and then we'll field a Q and a of everybody there. And again, I'm, I've always tried to be an open book. If people want to ask you know, big questions, they can, and uh, we'll look forward to talking there. So folks get your tickets. If you want to be part of that, thanks to John DeLynn for being so gracious to put an event together, I guess, essentially in my honor. And Amanda and I are really excited to share ourselves uh, there for those two days. And we'll head back to Southern Utah on Wednesday morning. I love it. I'm excited. I was looking at the date, hoping it would be in the summer because Salt Lake's about a five hour drive for me. So totally doable. And I was excited to maybe come down and be able to hang out. Um, but my kids aren't out of school yet. So I was bummed about that, but I am excited. Yeah. You get a little bit of, get, get some spotlight a little bit. I'm a fan. I'm a real fan. To the, to the Almost <laughs> Awakened podcast. Uh, so we'll see if we can't get a few people to subscribe to it. All right. Sweet. 
All right, so today, super excited to have on a guest that I met um, at a transhumanism conference years ago. We're going to bring on Lincoln Cannon to talk about all things transhumanism and tech and AI. Lincoln, how are you? I'm well. Thank you, Britt. All right, so I met you at a, at a transhumanism conference years ago and was just so interested in what you were doing even then, and then now it just seems like what you're doing is even more relevant to this conversation. And Bill and I have been talking about ChatGPT, and there even seems to be kind of this new transhumanism that's kind of acting like a religion. And so it's what you're doing is just becoming even more interesting over time. So I'm super excited to have you on the podcast today. So just my first question would be, what is transhumanism and how did you find yourself in this space? Yeah, thank thank you again for the invitation to be with both of you. It's I, I feel it's an honor, and I've been looking forward to it. Transhumanism, a, a good short definition of transhumanism that I use often is advocacy for the ethical use of technology to enhance human abilities, and I I'd throw in some emphases on that. One of the emphases would be on advocacy. Um, it's not just enough to use technology to enhance human abilities because everybody does that and that doesn't make everybody a transhumanist. It, transhumanism is an ideology, it's an advocacy, it's, it's an approach to life that you recognize and affirm and encourage. Um, so that's the first emphasis I would put on it. And then the second one is ethical. A lot of people confuse transhumanism with technological cheerleading, with mere advocacy. And nothing could be further than the, from the truth. Genuine transhumanists are as concerned about the risks associated with technological evolution as they are with the opportunities. And there are very real risks, just as substantial, horrifying as the opportunities are beautiful and awe-inspiring. So a transhumanist, as I would define it, is somebody who's advocating for an ethical approach to using technology to extend human abilities. And human abilities, of course, is more than just an individual thing um, from an ethical perspective. It's also about enhancing communities and our environments. And so it's about a, a holistic, ultimately a holistic approach to human enhancement and how to make our world and our communities and our lives and our bodies better. Mm, love that. So I think my overall question, just because I'm so interested in religion, is why is transhumanism becoming more attractive where it's not just, I don't think it's no, maybe it was at some point, but I don't think it's just like a niche nerd kind of, I don't know, little club. Like it's it's gaining traction in in the sense that this this, even just this book that I read over the weekend was talking about three new American religions, transhumanism being one of them. So I guess my question is, what is it about transhumanism that's kind of filling a hole that's being left behind as people are um, going away from organized religion? Is it functioning as a new religion? And is it is it is it just in America because we have this Christian idea of building Zion or creating heaven and transhumanism is this shift of, hey, maybe Jesus isn't coming, but what if we what if we create this through technology that is enticing for people? What is it about it that's, I guess, attractive for where we are in history right now? Yeah. Transhumanism doesn't necessarily function as a religion. There are transhumanists who I would not I, I would not characterize as religious. However, many transhumanists do use transhumanism 
to fill the religious function in their lives. And most of those do that in a misrecognized way. Most of them are engaged in transhumanism in a way that if they were to carefully study how religion expresses itself and functions in human culture, they would re eventually recognize, oh yeah, I guess all of those functions are being f fulfilled by transhumanism in my life. And so, and you know, there's a lot of par specific parallels that we could point to between uh, religionized transhumanism, which is quite common, and um, religion in general, and the ways that there are various rituals and theologies and various ways of, of constructing relationships and aspirations that um, work to, so to kind of help you get a sense for this, my, my definition of religion would be any, idea, any ideology that provokes a communal strenuous mood. And, and so um, a communal strenuous mood will, will, will express itself in practices that we do, we engage in together. We often call those rituals, but a misrecognized religion wouldn't call them ritual. They might call them something else. And, and there's a lot of things in culture that are borderline religious, like sports get borderline religious in the way that they provoke communal strenuous mood. Um, environmentalism either gets borderline religious or even goes all the way religious in misrecognized ways very often, as, as your book probably pointed out. Um, so transhumanism kind of pushes people there and um, it tends to push people there. It doesn't necessarily. There are, again, non-religious transhumanists, but a lot of them do end up becoming religious. And to your question about why that seems to matter more right now than perhaps historically, is that the old religions uh, have come under increasing scrutiny for all kinds of reasons. Some of the reasons are historical related, you know, claims about um, their role in history that may not have actually, that aren't living up to scrutiny from the perspective of secular historians or anthropologists or geologists, cosmologists. And then there are also religions coming under scrutiny for ethical reasons, right? As we learn more about each other and our communities and what helps human communities thrive, we sometimes see that religions have, have promoted um, ways of relating with each other that aren't optimal for human thriving, that actually are pretty oppressive in many cases and destructive. And, and as we look throughout history, we see that expressed, right? Um, we, we see ways in which religion has actually promoted uh, some of the most horrific human acts in history. But on the flip side of that, um, religion has also inspired some of the most beautiful acts in human history and has pulled people together to act with solidarity and to, to those ends, to those beautiful ends very often. So, you know, re religion is also, I would say, I would characterize is the most powerful social technology. Facebook is not, it's religion. And, and it has been for a very long time. So power though, isn't necessarily good or evil, right? Technology is powerful, but it can be used to hurt people. We use nuclear technology to destroy cities, but we also use it to power cities. And religion's no different. It's, it's, a, it's the most powerful social technology and we've used it to destroy um, each other and we've used it to, to build and construct and to um, help each other as well. So as religion comes under more, traditional religion comes under more scrutiny as it has in recent decades. And as 
ideas like transhumanism seem to become more real and substantial in our experience because whereas it used to be just maybe some science fiction nerds that could see the trajectory of where technology was going now more and more ordinary people are realizing oh my gosh those nerds actually were prescient in many ways they actually had ideas about the future that um, are turning out to some extent or another to be real it, it appears and more real over time and so as as those transhumanist predictions and aspirations seem to become more substantial as traditional religion seems to come under increasing scrutiny um, there's a there's this gap that gets created in the human heart um, pr predominantly where we had these aspirations which we inherited from traditional religion and that we're aesthetically inclined to even when we're not fully you know conscious of it on an intellectual level and then when something like transhumanism comes along and says you know what you can still pursue those aspirations in a real substantial practical way suddenly our heart and our brain get realigned in a powerful way and that changes us it, it transforms us it always has it's done that to humans for thousands of years and i'd suggest that as we've gone through religious uh, reformations many times historically we're going through one right now religion is not going to die and go away it's going to change and the religions of the future not all of them but many of them will be deeply transhumanist question for you i hear this word in this arena singularity what what is meant by that like when i read articles on uh, transhumanism um they're talking about this moment in time called singularity what do you know what what are they talking about yeah so uh, to qualify that uh, when transhumanists talk about the the singularity they're talking about a technological singularity as opposed to like a, a singularity in physics right like a black hole um although there are some analogies that they draw between the physics and, and the mm -hmm. technological and and so uh, a technological singularity is the idea that technology has been um technological complexity the complexity of technology produced by human civilization has been progressing for a very long time. And it, it's been progressing actually at what appears to be an exponential rate. Early on, exponential rates of change seem very subtle. Um, most people don't notice them, but over time, an exponential starts to become no more noticeable. And then um, toward the end of the trend of an exponential, it becomes disruptive at, in its um, impact on our experience um, related to that exponential change. So uh, a well-known example of this is, is Moore's law with um, transistors in computers, right? So early on computers had uh, simple, simple components that changed slowly, um, apparently to, to our experience, they changed pretty slowly, didn't make a huge difference in our lives. And then that change in transistors started to pick up and, it, and eventually it was the, the, the powerful consequences of those changes were so significant that our lives became completely changed by them. We, you know, we got the internet and we got uh, mobile devices and the world is unbelievably different as a consequence of exponential change in computing technology over just a few decades. And exponential technological change is happening in more areas than just computer components, although computer components are a major driver of many of those exponentials. So, um, 
the idea with the technological singularity is this rate of exponential change in technology may eventually reach a point where it's changing so rapidly and so abruptly that it that it breaks um, creates a break in human ability to predict or control technological change given our current human capacities and at that point um, all bets are off for humanity so te the technological singularity while some transhumanists might look at it in a naive way as you know it's going to, to make everything better a, a more a more educated perspective on the hypothesis of a technological singularity is that it's a it's a momentous idea may or may not happen um, that that suggests as many risks as it does opportunities um, and and one particularly uh, salient Contrib potential contributor to a technological technological singularity is the idea that if humans can eventually create a an artificial general intelligence that is capable, of course, by definition of being a general intelligence, of producing an artificial general intelligence superior to itself, that might be the last invention that at least unenhanced humans ever need to make, because those. Um, artificial intelligences would then self-reproduce at a rate that exceeds that, that humans can help them create. And again, human, biological humans by historical standards would be relatively um, impotent creatively compared to the capacities that they produce. And that may produce a technological singularity and not necessarily a good one. So, so you're personally- like When technology has the ability to come up with new technology itself, and, and I've, I can't remember what the name of the book was, but I've got it on Audible. And the idea was that once we link all these technologies together, and you already see how far AI has come in a decade, you know, um, I, I don't even know if AI is 10 years old uh, in terms of, but like the the progress it's made, the ability it has to draw art, the ability it has to, to write a, a synopsis or a script. If we could imagine a few more decades essentially once technology can then take off and mm -hmm. you give you give ai a problem and it solves the problem on its own it's inevitably going to come up with solutions we didn't think about and as long as it has parameters not to do it in absurd ways you're going to come up with it's going to come up with things that we couldn't even have imagined right yeah. is that kind of what you're saying yeah and already anybody who uses chat gpt will occasionally run into creations that they never had before imagined yeah. um, that that already happens. So, and yes, that will continue to happen. And, and the and the profundity of those experiences will will continue to increase. Um, so really, the, the question for for a transhumanist is, you know, are we going to be surpassed by the intelligence of our machines or are we going to create a, an increasingly symbiotic relationship with the intelligence of our creations? And transhumanists are, although not merely ethic, um, technological cheer cheerleaders, are still quite optimistic about the potential for humans to have deeply symbiotic relationships with our technological creations. And, and that implies, of course, enhancing human um, bodies and brains um, enhan enhancing human relationships and environments in such a way that our technological creations don't surpass us. Instead, they enhance us. And personally, I don't identify as a singularitarian, mostly because 
Um, well, I, I guess two reasons. Number one, I, I'm, I'm not at all fatalistic or deterministic about the idea that a technological singularity um, will happen. I do think it's a hypothesis that we should take seriously. But I also don't think a technological singularity would be an ethical or a good thing to look forward to. Because by definition, a, a technological singularity is a, pers or a perspectival thing where it, it would be a singularity only relative to somebody who cannot continue to cognize the change that is happening. And I think that that would be a major failure of humanity to allow such change to happen. What we, what we should do if we're approaching these things ethically is work hard to um, operate in a way that keeps humanity and the biological and technological and cultural descendants of humanity in step in a reciprocally empowering and respectful and thriving relationship with the technology that we create rather than allowing it to just go crazy and surpass us and potentially destroy us. Mm. Mm. So how do you think, speaking of just kind of AI and chat GPT, um, Bill and I have been playing a little bit with chat GPT. I, I had it write a poem for me about uh, like a mother who was nihilistic and antinatalist and write, write me a poem about that because there's so few female nihilist voices. They're just not in Western philosophy. They've never had the privilege to write about existential angst. And I was on my computer just like weeping at this beautiful poem that it wrote me. <laughs> just like, oh my God, this computer just like pierced my soul. Anyway, so this experiment that we're doing with ChatGPT Chat and we're already seeing like how it's affecting colleges and how it's affecting um, because it's just so accessible and people playing with art. So just watching this project in the public sphere just how do you think that it's going? What do you what are you optimistic about? What are maybe some problems that you're seeing? How do you think it's going so far, this project? I think it's exciting and frightening at the same time. And I think a lot of people probably feel about the same way. Um, a lot of people may not be either as excited or as frightened as I and some more nerdy people are, uh, simply because they probably don't really believe in their heart of hearts that it will go as far as I anticipate it's going to go. And, and again, that is not an inherently good thing. Um, there are real risks ahead, uh, very horrible real risks ahead. And where there's very horrible real risks ahead, sometimes really horrible bad things will happen. Um, but I'm also excited, you know, the, the kind of thing that you've experienced writing poetry from the perspective of a woman um, about nihilism you know, th things like that are, can be deeply moving and transformative for communities and relationships. Um, I, I've seen similar things happen in pe with people using ChatGPT. Um, right now, if you think about it, you, you, all of us, we have the benefit of having this really exquisitely complicated brain, biological brain, and we don't really know where all the thoughts in our brain come from. They kind of just pop in sometimes, right? And I, I would suggest that the brain has a lot more in common with ChatGPT than most of us want to acknowledge because we want to think of ourselves as very different um, in all ways from what we consider a mere machine, right? And while that might bug some people, for me, that is actually 
kind of a, a hopeful thought because I already function pretty well um, with a brain that I don't fully understand. It, it, it kind of leads me and guides me and walks beside me um, often and, and shapes, shapes me in ways I don't fully understand. It does this to all of us. But I also kind of, you know, unless you're a hardcore determinist, you also feel like you kind of have some kind of um, reflective say on how you interact with your conscious awareness of what the brain is doing. And that you can maybe, maybe you have free won't or something and, and you can kind of interact with it and shape it a little bit uh, toward ends that, that feel more desirable. And of course those desires are, are themselves um, inherited from our biology and our communities to, to large extents, but maybe we can cultivate them in particular directions. And, and so what I expect um, a good path forward is for these artificial intelligent systems that we're creating is that in the same way that our brain is a conglomerate of capacities that have evolved over very long periods of time, perhaps over shorter periods of time, we can continue that evolution in ways that AI can become maybe a third hemisphere, if you will, of our brain that has contributions to make, that can interact with our brain in useful, helpful ways, and that we still remain um, in dialectic with in, in empowered ways rather than it just consuming us. Um, and, and I kind of expect that that's what must happen if we want humanity to remain relevant uh, going forward, humanity and, and our descendants to remain relevant going forward. Because clearly in some ways, mm -hmm. this technology is already far more powerful than any individual human brain. It's already reflecting the combined capacity of humanity in many ways. And that's far beyond my own ability. I can't sit here and give you what ChatGPT can give you. I can give you some things that ChatGPT can't. But if you want to query Lincoln for a hymn about Mormon transhumanism in five seconds, a brand new hymn that's never been created before, I, I can't do it in five seconds. It won't be as good as what ChatGPT will do. But I could type it into ChatGPT and then give it to you. And, and if I had some kind of um, transparent, seamless, um, brain computer interface with chat gpt then i might be able to do that and i suspect that over time those will become available to me and um that doesn't mean that there's no risks in that process there's privacy mm -hmm. risks there's security risks there's autonomy risks and we need to deal seriously with all of those risks but as we deal with them and i trust we will and can um, i look forward to to extending my capacities into those computational technologies that we've developed I wasn't going to ask this question, but um, you remind me of my favorite book in high school was the Ender's Game series, where I don't know if you ever read it, but um, they, they create something like an internet and it becomes conscious and it hangs out with Ender on a headset and it kind of fuses with him. Anyway, um, and I, I guess my question is, are there debates in transhumanism? What is, what is the conversation around consciousness? Are we trying to link up with consciousness and provide, like you're saying, just like provide a third hemisphere of the brain where it's not conscious, but it's certainly supporting consciousness? Or are there projects to create consciousness? And what does the consciousness conversation look like in transhumanism? It's very, it varies considerably. It depends a lot on how people define consciousness, how people define intelligence. I'll, I'll offer up a quick couple of quick definitions for you. I, I define intelligence as the ability to achieve goals. 
pretty simple. And by this definition, um, intelligence is broadly observable in our environment. It doesn't require consciousness. Um, even a flush toilet is very has very limited intelligence. It has a goal to maintain a level of water dynamically in a tank. Um, and and of course, human brains are extremely con are extremely intelligent compared to a flush toilet. Um, so intelligence is the ability to achieve a goal. Consciousness is the ability to experience. Very different than the ability to achieve a goal. And consciousness is much more of a mystery. Um, in a certain way, it's the most known thing because we all experience our own consciousness directly. But beyond that, it's the most mysterious thing because I don't know if anybody else is conscious except by extrapolation. And, and it's kind of an act of charity or compassion that I attribute consciousness where I do. It's easiest to do with people who kind of seem like me, like you guys. But um, maybe it's a little bit harder to do for some people. For me, it, it, it's easy. But for some people, it might be hard to do with non-human animals. Um, for some people, it might be hard to do, um, even harder to do, say, with plants. Um, and then can, can we even imagine attributing consciousness to something um, like, say, a rock? Um, there, are, there is, of course, uh, a, a domain of thought uh, titled something like panpsychism which would say there's maybe some kind of proto-consciousness everywhere. And I have inclinations personally in that direction. So you're, you're more on the side of consciousness being an inherent property of the universe, not emergent from material. Uh, yes, in, in the most kind of raw sense, mm -hmm. nothing like human consciousness. Mm -hmm. I, I think that the way that we organize that material results in very different forms of consciousness, such as human consciousness. And so intelligence and consciousness um, are different things, but they end up influencing each other in a lot of ways. Intelligence also arises from how we organize matter. Like the reason a computer is so in potentially intelligent, by my definition again, um, is that we organize transistors in very complex ways to produce the ability to calculate very efficiently and do things that, you know, rocks don't do for us. Um, and, and likewise, I suspect, but can't prove because consciousness is something that we don't understand nearly as well, and at least can't investigate nearly as well. And that is that I suspect that all these things that we observe have, you know, potentially some kind of consciousness. It's not human. It's very alien. But um, I'm inclined that way. And one of the reasons I'm inclined that way as kind of an aside is not because I can prove it, of course, but because of how it affects me. Um, so it's kind of a pragmatic position for me. When I look at other humans as being conscious, I, I'm inclined to be kinder to them than if I consider them zombies or robots, right? And that, that same feeling for me extends beyond humans. I treat non-human animals more respectfully and I think about them more respectfully when I attribute consciousness to them. I treat plants more respectfully. I treat my world more respectfully when I wonder about the kind of consciousness it might have, even if it's very alien and very subtle compared to human consciousness. By um, the way, and, and so I like how that affects me. Yeah. By the way, quantum mechanics, I was just telling this in another conversation I had, uh, maybe it was Jacob Hansen's conversation with me, but that on the forefront of quantum mechanics is this there's this debate going on right now about whether time and space is fundamental. And then there are some of these uh, quantum mechanic scientists who are proposing the idea that consciousness actually comes before time and space. And, and there's no way to wrap your head around it, but that essentially reality is 
completely different than we understand it. And um, so while you say something that sort of would seem absurd to somebody listening, like, hey, maybe rocks have consciousness. The reality is this, the, the science at the very edges with data backing it up is beginning to explore ideas that seem completely absurd to us. And the data is supporting that something's going on that isn't what we think it is. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and I'm not going to, you know, die on this hill. I'm just going to tell people what I feel about it and why I feel that way about it. That I, I like science. I like consensus science. I like the project and I support it. And as we learn more and we test it, you know, experiment more. And as we see the benefits of applying it through technology in more ways, my perspectives on this may shift, but that's how I feel about it right now. Mm. I want to ask you about death because a project that I see in transhumanism a lot is um, the project of longevity. And if we can overcome, maybe not overcome death theologically, but maybe we can overcome death scientifically in this shift. Maybe I hear about that because I see transhumanism and because I'm, interested in religion, maybe I see it more in religious spaces. But is there a part of transhumanism that you think is fueled by our own fear of death, where we have this shift of maybe Jesus isn't coming, maybe there's not a heaven, maybe there's not an afterlife. Oh, but maybe I could live, maybe I could live forever. Maybe I could upload my brain and still interact with the world. Is there is there something there to um you know death terror management that's going on in transhumanism. Yeah, there, there is for sure. Um, I don't think that's all that's going on, but I do think fear of death is, is a driver. I think fear of death is a driver of religion in general as well. I think fear of death is a big motivator among humans in everything we do. Um, should it be? Uh, you know, personally, I'm not afraid of being dead, but the ways that people die are terrifying. Um, I, I currently, I, I, my current calling in the church is to be a Sunday school teacher in an assisted living center. And so I deal with people that are very close to death on, on, on a very personal basis, very regularly. And the, these people are suffering um, in oftentimes in inexplicably horrible ways. Um, and, and um, you know, I, I really, man, I, I, I and very often grateful I'm not dealing with what they're dealing with. Um, there's not, you know, it's sad to say maybe, there's not entire, it's not merely downside to the experiences that we have that, of suffering. We do learn empathy from it and we do learn ways of, um, we do learn about the economics of sustainability in life through those experiences. But um it, it, it's hard. And so, yeah, this, this fear, maybe this fear of aging and fear of suffering and potentially the fear of annihilation, although that doesn't motivate me at all. You're annihilated. What's there to be afraid of, right? You're gone. You're gone. Um, but these other things that these are fears that drive humanity. And that definitely is playing into transhumanism. That's definitely playing into religion. You know, Jesus in the new Testament, a lot of Christians overlook this, Set, tells his disciples, commands his disciples to go forth, of course, and heal the sick and console the sad. But he finishes that and he says, and raise the dead. He tells people to raise the dead. And I don't think we take Jesus seriously enough on that. Um, Paul in the New Testament says that the time will come when death will be conquered. Mortality will put on immortality and that we won't all sleep, he says. We won't all die. But we eventually will be changed 
as the passage goes, in a twinkling of an eye from mortality to immortality. And, and I think that this, um, this notion of overcoming death is already inherent to the most influential and powerful ideology in human history, which is Christianity, um, when, where Jesus, with the support of his most well-known disciples, like Paul, is telling us this is something to overcome. If you look in the Book of Mormon, uh, Nephi characterizes death as an awful monster. That's a direct quote from the Book of Mormon. Death is an awful monster. And he's not just talking about spiritual death. He's talking about also the death of the body, he says. So death from a Christian perspective is something to overcome. And um, from a transhumanist perspective, of course, it's also something that transhumanists, by and large, want to overcome. We want to overcome aging. We want to overcome death. And as it turns out, there are, uh, hypothetically, and with increasing substance to the hypotheses, vectors toward overcoming aging and death. We, we are increasingly learning more about how our bodies function, why aging happens, how we can inject human ingenuity and knowledge into those processes and change them for the better. Um, in many ways, we've already done this, right? Agriculture, and, and manufacturing have been changing the way that humans live. And, and we have self-domesticated now for thousands of years toward longer, healthier lives than our ancestors even dreamed possible. Um, and those processes, those technological processes, those scientific investigations have not stopped and are being accelerated now um, because of advances in computational technology and new scientific theories that, that, uh, that help us along. So, yeah, transhumanists aspire to, to, the, to those things like religious people do. And, and I would suggest that it's not at all a situation where you have to choose one or another. Um, in, in the New Testament, we also read, and this is from the book of James, that faith without works is dead or that belief or trust in God without action is dead. James goes on to say, if you see somebody who's naked and starving on the road, it's not enough to just tell them, hey, be fed and clothed. That's stupid. I mean, just telling them that is not going to do anything. You actually have to feed them. You actually have to clothe them. If your faith is that they can overcome being naked and and hungry, do something about it. What should we do about it? Well, Jesus tells us we should heal the sick. We should console the sad. We should raise the dead, Jesus says. And how do we do that? Well, we do that through action. And what kind of action? Well, um, maybe there have been times in human history when there wasn't much we could do about raising the dead beyond hope for the ability to do that maybe someday. But as it turns out, the, 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 subs, the substantialness of that hope has been increasing as our scientific understanding of bodies has been improving. And while some people may think that it's crazy still, there are an increasing number of people who are starting to wonder, is aging inevitable? Is death inevitable? Is staying dead inevitable? Are these things uh, are there ways that we can uh, approach these issues technologically to solve them? And if we do approach them technologically to solve them, can that not be an expression of our Christianity? And my answer to that is absolutely yes. There's, there is, there's not a, a, a better expression of faith than to work towards the ends that the faith trusts in. If I'm a Christian and I trust in immortality and eternal life, shouldn't I go do missionary work? Shouldn't I go um, uh, 
you know, as the church says in our mission, perfect the saints. And, and shouldn't I try to redeem the dead? Mm. Like, shouldn't I do something about this? And so for me, uh, technology is in our arsenal. It's not the only thing, but it is in our arsenal. It is among the means that we can use to express our discipleship of Jesus Christ. Are, are you, do you, um, I don't even know if this matters other than it came up and it seems interesting to me. It, do, is it your thought process that prophets of old saw some future day where we would can't, we would conquer death with technology or are you retrofitting transhumanism as a way to fulfill the prophecy, even though it's not what they intended? Um, I'm okay with either of those. Um, if, if you want, if you want my opinion of what's most likely the prophets of old were provoked by a sublime aesthetic. I'm going to call that the Holy ghost to share that provocation in influential ways with the people in ways that would make them act in ways that would pull them together toward that action. Um, increasingly over time that would form religion as a consequence that would develop culture as a consequence that would develop technologies as a consequence. And that as a consequence of all that, we now live in what Mormonism characterizes as the dispensation of the fullness of times when unprecedented knowledge is flowing upon the heads of humanity, like the Missouri river an unstoppable flow as it's characterized by Joseph Smith and the doctrine and covenants. And I, and I think that that flow of knowledge um, should be recognized as sublime, as holy, as divine, and as a call from God for us to use for uh, ethical, good, thriving, human exalting purposes. And I, I want to, can I ask one more follow-up, Britt? I'm sorry. Um, I, there was a stand-up comedian, it might've been Louis C.K., I don't remember who it was, but they were talking about transhumanism and how we're getting to an age where we can implement technology with human bodies or be able to transfer consciousness so that essentially one's mind can live for way longer than the 120 years that seems like our max. And you're talking about that in places here. And the comedian made the joke that do we really want people from the 1400s, you know, making, making global decisions in 20, you know, 2050, or, you know, obviously it'd be way later than that. But the point being is that often productive change in progress happens at the feet of death of the old generation and allowing space for new ideas and new perspectives and new experiences to come forward. And I even think of like the 1950s. Would I want the people of the 1950s living in 2023? And I'm also not naive to the fact that the technology itself might be the key to bringing somebody from the 1950s into a futuristic view in their head rather than being stuck in the ideas of the 1950s. Any thoughts there? Yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> to kind of drive the, your point even farther, a lot of people say that death itself is ne necessary for meaning, for purpose. And my pushback on that is that death is only one example, a very strong example of what is actually necessary for purpose and for meaning and, and for growth. And that is change. Change is what's necessary. And 
in Mormon theology, that's expressed in, in a lot of important ways. We call it eternal progression. Um, not all Mormons look at it this way, but a substantial portion do. Even God is eternally progressing from a Mormon theological view. As one Mormon prophet put it a couple hundred years ago, almost a couple hundred years ago, 150 years ago, uh, God is progressing in knowledge and power, worlds without end, and it will be just so with us. And, and so when, when, I, when I think about the importance of change to meaning and purpose, I embrace that. And then I ask myself, okay, well, what do we do with these people who, um, you know, if we believe in a universal resurrection, as I trust in and I hope for myself, what do we do with very different people who have very different desires and very different backgrounds? Well, Mormon theology, I think, has a great solution for that, too. Mormon theology doesn't say, hey, we're all going to be eventually resurrected into one heaven that never changes. Mormon theology actually strongly rejects such a no notion. What Mormon theology advocates is the idea that resurrection is gradual over time and into a diversity of heavens and worlds that reflect the desires and works of those resurrected persons. And so um, I imagine and hope for living in a cosmos of innumerable heavens and worlds um, where people are not, of course, even remotely all going to be, say, Mormon, but that they will live in, in worlds and, and thrive in worlds that match what um, works for them um, in accordance with their desires. And we probably are already living in such a thing ourselves right now, from my perspective. So um, I, I embrace what you say about the importance of change and death can be a, an important component of that. But I also think that, that it's possible to create environments of change that don't necessitate death from, in the way that we have in the way that we have historically experienced it. Mm. Yeah. So you got Bill and I kind of excited because, you know, we've both at this point left organized religion. And so um, I can see I can see his brain work and my brain work on on how this is working in, in your brain. And I, I think my my fear would be that like you, I'm much more interested in like, like I would be much more interested in science going after dementia. Cause that just seems like just such unnecessary suffering than maybe death itself and annihilation, which doesn't scare me so much. But I, I, I guess my fear is that when transhumanism does link up with religion, uh, mostly subconsciously, either people are using it as their religion and they don't know it, or it's building on these Christian ideas that um, that are just in our collective subconscious, but they've left organized religion. And so it's filling that hole in that way. My fear is that if, as you say, that religion was created to deal with existential fear, the fear of death, the fear of meaninglessness, the fear of isolation, the fear of freedom. And if we continue to, if we say, ah, all of this, all of this religion, all of this religious vision um, is going to kind of come to pass with transhumanism, then I'm afraid that you're building transhumanism on a platform that was based in human fear rather than perhaps more of an atheist perspective, which would have a little bit more bravery towards the idea of death. You know, you have Neil Tyson deGrasse saying things like, you know, the, the value of a flower is that it blooms this week. Nobody gives any, each other silk flowers because nobody wants a flower. You know, the fact that the flower's blooming right now is what makes it precious. Or you have Elon Musk saying, um, 
I, I, you know, he said before, I'm not interested in the project of longevity because I don't want 120 year old brains. Once you're over 30, your brain is useless to me, right? In his kind of like harsh way of saying things. And then you have, you know, Socrates and philosophers who have this way of, of facing death head on. And there's a certain kind of bravery to that. And there's a certain freedom in actually facing these existential fears head on rather than finding new tools to try to, you know, new heavens and new immortalities and new year specials and new tribes. And I don't know. I, I wonder if I wonder if transhumanism kind of more on the atheist side would um be a safer bet in the long run because it's not built on the temple of human fears, which is what religion has been more built on. Anyway, what do you think about that? Um, so first a clarification, I don't think religion was built on fear um, mm. primarily. I, what, what I intended to communicate and think is true is that fear greatly informs um, the development of religion and all human aspirations. Um, fear, fear is a strong motivator for everything that humans do, religious and otherwise. Um, what I do think religion was actually primarily built for and on was the drive for power, which all technology is built around. And, and I don't think that's inherently good or bad. Um, I think that power is just power. Power is what helps us accomplish goals and intelligence is goal seeking. So, um, religion religion involved to um optimize culture for goal attainment uh, to optimize human communities for goal attainment whether those goals were good or evil um and we've seen both happen um on, on the question of courage i i strongly disagree with those who characterize embrace of death as courage um for the same reason that i'm not afraid of death uh, being dead is not a frightening thing once you think about it very hard. Um, because when you're dead from the nihilist or strictly um, reductive materialist perspective, you're not going to feel anything, least of all fear. So why be afraid of not feeling anything? Um, whereas I, I feel that way, but I know a lot of people who actually like being, not being present and having life be meaningless is a fear. Like there while are people alive. who have fears of annihilation. Yes. While they're alive. <laughs> yeah. That's the irony. It, it's a, yeah. it's a, it is, it's an absurd fear, but it is a fear. Yeah. It may be absurd, but we do all kinds of things that are absurd. Oh, for sure. I think all yeah. kinds of things that are We're absurd. We're all often incoherent. I, I yes. agree with you on that. <laughs> yes. Um, and so what requires courage then is to look at the real drivers of those fears. And the real drivers of those fears are not being absent. Actually being absent, it's impossible to be afraid anymore. Your fear would go away. What's driving those fears is presence, is the yeah. real challenges and struggles of life. And so there's a story in, in, the, in the Book of Mormon that resonates strongly with me on this question. Uh, Jesus appears in um, to the Nephites, right? Um, for those who know the Book, Book of Mormon, uh, basically Jesus visits America in the Book of Mormon. And he appears to the Nephites and he's talking to 12 people he chooses and calls his disciples and, and says, hey, I'm about to leave. What would you like to do for me? What would you like me to do for you before I leave? 
nine of his disciples come to him and say, hey, um, will you please bless us that we can come speedily to you after we finish preaching the gospel in our lives? Come speedily to heaven. And Jesus says, yes, and you, and you are blessed for that. You, you'll, you'll, you'll have that what you desire. There's three of the disciples that don't want to tell Jesus what they want. Um, and, they're, and they seem ashamed. They're quiet. They don't want to tell him. And Jesus, of course, because Jesus has superpowers, and Jesus says, well, I know what you're thinking. And he says, you don't want to die. You want to continue preaching the gospel until I return. And Jesus makes an important theological comment at that point. He says, you are more blessed for this desire. And I think this strongly reflects the, um, what I would characterize as the importance of courage. And I, I, in fact, I would say that true faith, genuine faith, always is courage. And that very often the reason why people don't think faith is a useful or good thing is because they've misunderstood faith as something other than courage. Faith is courage. Faith is courage to act in the face of our most serious problems and do what we can with the, all of the means that we've received by grace, because we didn't create this world on our own, to make the world a better place, to make our relationships better, to make our bodies better, our world better. And, and so for me, the response to the challenges and sufferings of life that is most courageous is not the Freudian death drive to just embrace death as an inevitable outcome. That's giving up from my perspective. That's a lack yeah. of courage. What yeah. is the most courageous from my perspective is to say again, again, like Nietzsche says, yeah. that I would live this life again and try again and do the same things again. Yeah. That is courage. I, I think I think where I get hung up is that what I when I look, you know, as a historian and I look at so much of human history is just men and their monuments because they're afraid to die. Right. And their illusions of grandeur because they're afraid to die. And to me, there's been there's something if if nature is this process of continual renewal and we've tried to escape death and be separate from nature and we make these mausoleums and we don't put our bodies back into the earth because we want to be separate from nature, from the very nature that gave birth to us. I find that paradoxical and even unethical. And there's something to me in the bravery of really putting yourself into the system that gave birth to you and the reality of, um, the reality of you, you get this opportunity, you have like a flower, you get to bloom and check things out. And then you go back into the earth and your material is created into something else. And that's kind of the state of nature. And so if that is the state of nature, I like the idea of facing death because it seems more rational than to um, play all the human games that we do to try to escape the nature that we are. Um, but if the nature, if the state of nature were to change in the sense that you could be immortal, then you would have to rethink that question. But I do think that as thing as the way things are, I find more bravery in just kind of it, accepting nature as it is and not seeing yourself as separate and special and um, 
you know, again, creating these, these pyramids and these monstrosities to try to, you know, escape the idea that we're separate from nature and just really doing your part to, um, because we're so interconnected to be a good influence on the system. And then it continues on without you. I find some sense of bravery in that, but it wouldn't necessarily be that if the state of nature were to change. And so you'd have to rethink the ethics around all of that. Anyway, that was an interesting little side tangent. Do you have anything else on that bill or do you want to move on? You're banded. For what it's worth, I agree with you that we're not separate from nature and never should be. But I would call the importance of that change, not necessarily traditional yeah. death. Some change is death think, in different ways. Yeah. It, it, the only other thing I would want to throw out, and I, I don't even think it's a real fear, only because the moment we can integrate ourselves with artificial intelligence or integrate ourselves with computer access to computer speed, thinking and information, but... The idea of prolonging life, for instance, one of the fears I have is that if you had forever to do the things in your life, you would postpone. In other words, if I could read a good book today, I'll read it today because I know life is short. But if I knew I was going to live to be 587 years old, the impetus to play the game to, or to read the book today is maybe a lot less. And so I worry about human motivations when we tamper with how long someone lives. And and I think you can even see some of that when you look back through history and see at times when people had 40 good years to live, that there when was a were, different way about consolidating one's life and getting things done versus living to be 85. And so I'm a little nervous about what humans, how their own motivations change when they have a life that extends far beyond what it does today. When you were a child, you may have had a favorite book that you read um, that was influential to you, maybe even changed your life for the better, hopefully. And if you think about that book now, how important is it that you read that book right now? Would it have the same influence on you right now? Would you feel the same urgency to read that book right now? Hatchet, Answered by the way, questions. by Gary Paulson. <laughs> so. I like that one too. <laughs> so, for me, that's, that's, every, goes, that's every child's fantasy of running away and living in the woods. And yeah, so, not the airplane know. crash, but all the all the work after to survive. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For me, the answer to all of those questions is that, no, it's they're not as relevant to me now as they were when I was a child. And the reason for that is not because I've died since then in, in the traditional sense, but in another sense, in a maybe inform, informatic sense that Lincoln has died mm -hmm. since then. I've changed so dramatically. I've transformed so dramatically that the things that are momentous to me then were momentous to me then are no longer momentous to me now. And um, so you're so you're okay with longevity so so long as we continue to be able to complexify and change and experience new things um, because you could essentially live many you, you know, you could live so many lives that it would still be compelling and still be interesting and still be, you'd still be growing. I think it would be incoherent to imagine any other kind of immortality. I think that the platonic imaginations of God and immortality are, are vacuous. There's nothing there. When Nietzsche said God is dead, he was talking about that God and I agree with him. Um, but when we're talking about embodied gods, 
when we're talking about evolving gods, when we're talking about natural gods that became gods the same as, uh, as all other gods have done before, we're talking about gods that change. And where there is great change, there is always great capacity for creation and for compassion and for courage. Okay. Um, one thing I will say, what one thing that I noticed about transhumanists and the first time I went to a transhumanism conference, because I'm more of a pessimistic brooder by nature, it's just like my natural stance and I work with it and whatever, but like the optimism was like overwhelming. <laughs> like y'all are an optimistic people, I feel like. And um, sometimes it was like, whew, the optimism in, in this room, like I need to take out and, you know, go out and get a breath of fresh air. But one thing that I have a hard time seeing any way around, again, maybe just because I have a pessimistic bias, is um, how is it not going to be the thing that separates the rich from the poor indefinitely and creates essentially a break in, in human evolution, where the poor stay down here and progressing at evolution at this rate, and then the rich are going in this other direction and essentially almost creating two separate species. Um, I, I don't see a way around that. How, how do you, how do we, you know, this idea that people could, could link up and they could change their genomes and they could, they could increase their longevity and they could um, enhance their life. I don't see how that's not going to be so much more available to the rich than the poor. Um, and, and I don't see how that doesn't create a, a dystopia of sorts. What are ways, and I know that you're very into the ethics of all of this. Um, how, how is that, what is that conversation looking like in transhumanist circles? Yeah. First of all, let me say that the concern you express is a huge risk that people should take very seriously. And that sadly, we're likely to see that risk play out in extremely harmful ways, as we already have from time to time to various extents. Um, that said, when we look at the history of technological adoption, we do see that there are early adopters of many technologies that benefit greatly um, relative to humanity at large. We also see that over time, the benefits of those technologies uh, tend to become widely available very inexpensively. Uh, an excellent example of this is mobile smartphones. Um, smartphones are allowing many people on the African continent to leapfrog the traditional infrastructure investment needs and gain societal benefits that they never would have gotten as fast um, a decade or two even ago. They would have been required to build out large infrastructures that were far too expensive for what they could afford. And now because of mobile devices, they can just get there in a, in, a, in a way that's much faster and less expensive. And people that don't have a lot of money in Africa, very, very many of them still have a mobile device. And, and I think that we'll continue to see things like that happen. The, the cost of technology de decreases precipitously um, as it becomes um, more mature. But that does not mean that um, we should be 
lackadaisical about that risk because sometimes that period of time between when a new technology that's very expensive is introduced and when it becomes generally available and affordable can be so abused by a small number of people that it can forever change human civilization in negative ways or or maybe not forever but for far too long and so we need that we need to remain vigilant about that risk and and we do need to work together to to mitigate that risk and i'd suggest that one of one of the reasons and, and there's some complex philosophy behind this i apologize but one of the reasons i actually trust in god is that um, I think the future of humanity as superhumanity is most probable if we learn to decentralize power and promote cooperation and compassion as a consequence as the vector to using power. That we need that we're, we become most enabled through cooperative and compassionate action. If we develop those skills, I think that humanity will survive. If we don't develop those skills, I think humanity is probably going to become extinct. And that is among the reasons why I actually trust that superhumanity will be more compassionate than we are now. And by extension, God is more compassionate than we are now. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Um, are there books or for the people who are following live and listening later are there is there like a movie or a show that like really gets your trans transhumanist brain really excited or um yeah just just some way to get into thinking about these things and thinking about the future that's on the horizon what 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 kinds of thing you know books and shows get you really excited sure my probably my favorite TV series of fictional TV series of all time is is Battlestar Galactica, the the newer version. The old one's interesting, but the 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 new Battlestar Galactica TV series is really entertaining and and uh, explores transhumanist concepts and of course um, builds from what is you know the original Battlestar Galactica was built out of the Mormon cosmos. Its creator was a Mormon, and the new Battlestar Galactica TV series. Um, evolved from that and so maintains many of those cosmological influences, even though the, the producers of the, the directors of the show may not know just how much Mormon influence is in what they created. And so, I mean, it's, it's a fun TV series, very entertaining and explores transhumanist concepts in a thought provoking way. So I, I, I love that. Um, as, as far as like say books go, um, I don't read as much fiction as I used to. Um, one fictional book that I that I have really enjoyed recently is by a, a Chinese author, um, and it's um, let's see, it's called like the Dark Forest, if I remember correctly, the Three Body Problem. Dark Forest, I think, is a second book, and it explores this idea of what human contact with extraterrestrial intelligence might really be like from kind of a hard science fiction perspective, one that doesn't try to be more of a fantasy future set Western like Star Wars and more of a, if, if this happens in the world that we actually know and the physics that we actually know and the sociology that we actually know, what would contact with extraterrestrials be like? 
And I think that, that those books um, explore it in a really thought-provoking way. Again, the first one's The Three-Body Problem. I think the second one's called Dark Forest, and there's a third one who, in the trilogy I'm forgetting the name of. But those are really good. Mm-hmm. Um, nonfiction. You know, if, you, if, you've, if you've never read it, you should read Ray Kurzweil's The Singularity is Near. It's kind of a classic in transhumanist um, writing. It's in some ways a little bit about, out of date right now because it's an older book. But it it does it does give a flavor for what motivates a lot of transhumanists. And then if you're into reading about Mormon transhumanism in particular, um, I I wrote a book and published it recently, entitled The Consolation. And what it is is an adaptation of the um, last General Conference sermon of Joseph Smith. People call it the King Follett sermon. It's an adaptation of that sermon into um, contemporary language and ideas, um, including transhumanist language and, and, and ideas. And it explores Mormon transhumanism um, from the perspective of giving a sermon about um, the importance of theosis, humanity becoming God and the resurrection of the dead. Mm. And in this case, of course, um, mentions technology significantly. And I have one last question for you, and then Bill, I'll let you finish up your question. Um, and I didn't, I didn't write this on the outline, but since we're talking a little bit about Mormonism now, um, I so I I wrote a book on Mormon philosophy, and it was all the favorite things that I loved about Mormonism. Heavily leaned heavily on King Follett and and other more kind of philosophical strands of Mormonism that were seemed to be more alive in early Mormonism. And there were things that were interesting and exciting and creative and even profound things that I loved about that philosophical branch of Mormonism that um, you're probably even more familiar that you've read into and thought about even more than I have. And then at some point in my own personal journey, I had a bit of a mourning period where I came to accept that this book that I had written that kind of showcased, yes, yeah, some some maybe a complexity and 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 controversy in Mormon philosophy because it's not it's not well thought out, um, but there were some nuggets there that were just so delicious, right? And I and I kind of teased those out in this in this book that I wrote and the project of writing the book, and then as I published it and just whoever wanted to read it and whatever. Mormon philosophy, I mean, it's a very niche, right? That's going to be a very niche book. And essentially, I kind of mourned that this was the Mormonism that could have been that no longer is. And slowly for me personally, and that may just because be because mm-hmm. of my experiences or as a woman in the church, um, you're going to have a different experience. Um, but I came to this notion that what I loved about Mormonism and these really deeply philosophical philosophically interesting things about early Mormonism were now dead. And it was a, it was a different, it was a different beast now. And what I loved about it was gone. And so I took what I loved about it and moved on to other places. And I continue to talk about spirituality and philosophy, but now more in the secular space. And so I guess my question is, do you, have you had that experience too, or how, um, 
do you see Mormonism as having the, it, it's, it always has the ability, but I guess the propensity to be able to shift and change and be able to have a renaissance of these ideas that were once exciting? Or do you see that it's ossifying and perhaps even dying in the Mormon, the Mormon ideas that go with transhumanism that makes you able to be both a Mormon and transhumanist? Is that part of Mormonism dying for you in any way? Or is that just my experience? Um, I, I, I think, Britt, that you and I have in common some of those experiences. Of course, I haven't lived um, through, through you. Um, so I don't know what you've experienced, but some of the things that you talk about, like um, um, experiencing or identifying with nihilism um, and atheism, you know, th those are things that I've experienced and lived with as well in my way. And so I, I lost my faith and became a, a closet atheist um, in my young adulthood for, for years. And there were a few drivers of that. Um, one driver was the very predictable problem of evil. You know, that drives a lot of atheism and nihilism. Um, other drivers included, you know, the church not living up to my expectations of it. Um, and um, an another, you know, kind of on a personal level, one of the biggest drivers was the death of my father and how that fed in to my, you know, my wrestling with the problem of evil. He died of cancer, his third cancer when he was 48. Um, and so w when I, when I was confronted with those kinds of thoughts and those, those challenges, um, I don't think that in, in hindsight, I'm actually really grateful for those because they helped change me, um, in ways that I deeply value now, but at the time were really difficult. And, um, to, to say, to say, you know, it sometimes seems mel seems melodramatic to say I struggled with nihilism because it, it almost sounds like a joke to, to some people, but it wasn't a joke for me. And it, it wasn't sound a, like joke it was a joke for me either. No, it, wasn't. it doesn't sound like it. And, and so I think you might, you know, we might know something of what we've um, both experienced there, although everybody's different, but um, some things happened in my life at that point that um, one of them was encountering explicit transhumanism, transhumanism. And I say explicit because I would argue that Mormonism has always been an implicit transhumanism. But I encountered explicit transhumanism during that time. And um, there were some other important influences as well. That wasn't the only one. But those influences converged in a way that reignited for me the a living hope and a living faith and again as i've mentioned before that faith as i understand it is a is a living courage to act on something um that i had been losing that i had lost and that was that so much of the core vision of mormonism was so beautiful and so so vast and so open and so imagination provoking 
and I yearned for it, but I couldn't believe in it. And it had dis and the realities of life and, you know, my relationship with the church and with people and human beings had so disillusioned me that my brain just couldn't go there despite my heart wanting to. Um, but the things I encountered changed that. And I found realignment between my yearnings, my heart and my intellectual life. And where I had, you know, when I was a teenager, I once told my dad that pessimism is realism because I, that's where I was. It was like one of the most sincere expressions I ever made to my father, sadly. Um, now I, now I have an, a, if I could talk to my myself at that age, I, I could I could speak for hours and days even about why that's just not true and why that simply should not be true, like both ontologically and ethically. And and um, so I, I, I changed, I, I transformed and and a lot of what Mormon transhumanism is is an encapsulation of, of the reasons, the influences why I and people like me changed mm -hmm. and what ignited for us a substantial courage in God and in the, um, in what I would characterize as the most beautiful visions that Mormonism has to offer for humanity. Yeah. And so I see, I can hang out with anyone who has kind of wrestled with these things and then had kind of, as you say, like a re-enchantment and you fall in love with life again, post nihilism, wherever that I can hang out with people in that, anyone in that space, because you've seen kind of both the good and bad of religion. So you're not just um, in this kind of lazy space, but of, um, religions are all good or all bad right which is just i have a harder time hanging out with people who are on either sides but if you're in this kind of gray space and you've wrestled with some things and you've come out of it i i i can hang out with anyone in that space but i do feel like there is um somewhat of a crossroads there when i hear people's stories of how they go through nihilism and how they fall in love with life again in their process of doing that is that some people um find God and religion again, but on just in a different way, right? They're meeting it at a different level. And you see this with Rain Wilson, who just wrote this book called so Soul Boom. And he's he's in the Baha'i faith and he um, talks about God a lot or, or just a um, Richard Rohr or a Brian McLaren or anyone like that. And then there's also this kind of, and then there's also people who are pulling out the tools, the awe, the transcendence, the gratitude for life, the the goals, the community, the love, they're pulling out these tools, but God never kind of comes back and, and God kind of never comes back in their journey. So for me, I kind of went more that route where I'm just so excited about pulling out all of the helpful tools that were contained in religion and spirituality. But for me, God never, you know, God never came back um, after those moments. But for some, that re-enchantment includes God and for some it doesn't and I just I find that very interesting and it, it doesn't bother me too much so long as you're not in the you know um 
either kind of militant atheist or all in religious person, which is just harder for me to, you know, harder for me to have conversations with. Uh, but it is interesting that when you're talking about that, that kind of journey into to nihilism and out, some people um, find God in that journey. And some, for some, God never returns, but both can yeah. find um, kind of light at the end of that tunnel. Yeah. Um, without transhumanism, I would almost certainly still be an atheist. Um, and I would also argue that atheism and transhumanism are incompatible if your atheism is too general. If you're atheistic to natural gods, then you don't have any coherent business being a transhumanist. Um, is it just, is it a lack of, is it just because atheism has nothing positive to offer? So just, it just, um, just as, just as a stance, right? It's not, it's not the same as secular humanism or these other things. Just if you're just an atheist and that's it, then you'd have no business hanging out in transhumanism because you'd have no direction where creativity can go towards because there's no positive statement there. Is that what you're saying? No, no. It's a, um, so the kind of atheism I'm talking about here is the assertive atheism. There is no God. Um, not, not the inherited atheism of a child or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Some people define atheism that way. Uh, and it's much more logical and practical and less vague. And that is that transhumanism is about, is fundamentally about trust in human capacity to become superhumanity. And the probabilities and the logic associated with that for reasons that are unfortunately more complex than I can get into in just one or two sentences um, are incoherent if you're going to too, too broadly assert there is no God. For people such as I and many Mormons who associate um, God with beings who evolve into Godhood that do so through natural means that may appear magical to us, but have explanation. They're in accordance with natural law, ultimately. Um, to reject such a God is to reject the very goal that most transhumanists have. And because of that, I would argue that you're putting yourself in a logically and practically incoherent and a self-undermining position by declaring too strong of an atheism, too broad of an atheism, and it's simultaneously say, I trust that humanity can become superhumanity. Hmm. Well, that is it for me. It's super interesting. And Bill and I after will will kind of chat and, and debrief. But any other questions from you, Bill? Uh, not a question. I While we were talking there, I went on and looked up the top 10 best transhumanist podcast. And the first one says Road to Transhumanism. Second one's The Age of Transition. But look what number three is. It's Lincoln Cannon. So I tried to go look at what episodes, but this ad thing blocks it. So I found it elsewhere, podcastaddict.com, Lincoln Cannon. And you've got about 10 episodes, and they all seem to dive into uh, various things, but at least some of them were geared towards transhumanism, if you can get past the clothing ads that are there. Um, but I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, is this something you just started, or is this something you walked away from a while ago? I'm just curious if you're thinking about putting out more podcast material. Um, 
the the podcast material goes out every time I write a blog post. Yeah, it, it is uh, AI facilitated. Um, there's there's an AI that reads the blog post to you and feeds that into the various podcast things. So it's uh, it's not a podcast in the way that you guys do, which requires more um, human maybe, effort. Well, maybe yeah. you're you're going to put us out of business. Your your AI podcast has become so much better than ours. That this really <laughs> is a transhumanist podcast on multiple. It really layers. is. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So well, yes, cool. you'll continue I, to see those. Yeah, good. I do see the year on this April twenty seventh, twenty twenty three. So not uh, not too long ago. So super cool. I just want to say you're you're intelligent. You're articulate. You've put a lot of time and thought into this. I'm deeply impressed with your perspective and. I, I have a tendency, I'm just the way I am. I have a tendency when when somebody comes from an active perspective, I'm I'm kind of looking to poke holes. And uh, having kind of looked into transhumanism a little bit, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. This is the direction we're going. We are going to integrate uh, technology with uh, humanity. And it is going to have, as you point, by the way, I love how you, seriously you take both the benefits and the risk the potential benefits and the potential risk. Um, as we do this, there's a lot at stake, good and bad. And I don't, as you, you seem to hint at it, that we're almost, we almost can only be clueless to what the potential of this is. And I love your, uh, your seriousness about how we ought to think all of this through every step along the way and just deeply appreciate you helping our audience to, to understand transhumanism and and thanks for your time, my friend. Thank you, Bill. It's been my pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, Lincoln. Thank you, Brett. Okay, right. we're gonna drop you off. We're gonna chat for a little bit, and uh, thanks so much for your time today, my friend. Appreciate you. Okay, take it easy. All right. Well, that may have been our first guest who quoted the Book of Mormon on our podcast. Probably. Yeah, I wasn't even familiar with that scripture when he said monster. About death, I had to go look it up, and I'm like, damn it, he's right and I'm wrong. That scripture does exist. I did put it in the comments. Uh, yeah. I'm kind of, again, no offense to anyone. I'm a little grateful that my brain is losing some of those things and filling it with other things. But um, for folks who uh, take that book as scripture, uh, it's kind of a neat little scripture. I put it up on the comments, and uh, there's still a lot of the Book of Mormon that I can get behind. But Lincoln is uh, an interesting figure. He obviously, yeah, intelligent, well-informed, deconstructed, reconstructed, ends up back in Mormonism because Mormonism is the best spiritual community by which uh, uh, transhumanism has a solid footing. And you can see it when you go online, you look up transhumanism you'll have just the general transhumanism articles, but there are numerous connections with Mormon transhumanism. Mm -hmm. It is the religion where believers can connect both together much more easily than anywhere else. And he said that he said as much early on. Um, I don't really have a lot to add here other than I'm excited and scared, mm. uh, right? Like it could be the end of humanity as we know it. And it could be, how we reach the stars. It, it, it could be yeah. all the things and destroy us. You can't stop it. You know, it's not like, no, well, we have some ethical concerns, so we're just going to like stay here right now. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's going to go and, and you, you know, 
going to go on much longer. I don't think that we'll solve immortality in our lifetime. So I think this project will have to go on without us. But yeah, it is interesting. I can, I could see it. And when I went to the Mormon transhumanism conference and I met him and I think I presented a paper too, I can't remember what it was about. Um, it, it does make sense. You know, you can pull out some of the really philosophical things about Mormonism, about progression that really make Mormonism different than Christianity. And it does fit in transhumanism really easily. But again, I, I agree with your statement when you pushed on him and said, aren't you kind of hijacking this into a direction that Jesus, Joseph Smith, whatever apostle you're quoting, wouldn't have, you know, imagined. They, wouldn't have imagined, wouldn't have predicted. Um, you and I have doubts about whether these statements are even accurate or where they were recorded, were these even historical figures, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, yeah, your, your pushback of, you know, is this hijacking something, trying to fit something in a box that wasn't designed for that box? And, and maybe that's unfair to combine these things together. And that was kind of your pushback. And as you were saying it, I was like, that's exactly where I kind of see it is, 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 it is it trying to marry two things that, that yes, you can make them go together, but were they designed to go together? I don't think so. I don't think that you need one for the other. Here, here's my other fear is that the most unhealthiest among us are the ones who would like eternal life. In other words, if I ask Britt Hartley, if you could live forever, if ever, if you, have to, you could push a button today and you can either live forever or it just stay the way it is. Would, would you want to live forever? Yeah, I would say it depends. The only way that I would live forever is if I could just be a brain in a vat and just, I just want to see how the story ends. Like, just keep me, just like have me Ooh, like a brain in a, a jar. a long time in a vat to just sit still. Like, a, I, I. Listening to auto, audio I, books every day or what? No, more just like, like. I, the only thing that makes me sad about dying, honestly, yeah. um, other than, you know, just like the, oh, it might hurt or whatever, is yeah. is not knowing how the human story ends. I want, yeah. I, I think I would stay alive, even though it would be boring to just read the newspaper every day. But I think I'm, I'm enough in this story of human history. And, you know, you and I are reading books about sapiens and human nature just freaking all the time. And if I could see how that story ended, I'd probably stick around to see how the story ended. But yeah. but as like a person having to like have a job forever and just like do that, like be a human forever. I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm tired. So I'm, yeah, I'm so 40 I'm, and I'm tired. <laughs> and I wouldn't either. And I'm worried that the people who would want that are the most unhealthy, power hungry. Because uh, they haven't faced death. Yeah. That in in their their mentality is how do I get more because they never get enough right how do I get more control more power more wealth more influence hence the people that would be most willing to do the work to pay for this to have access to it yeah are going to be the folks who we would like want. The the pharaohs who use slaves to build the pyramids and they get buried with their concubines and their gold and they have their heavens and the people who are driving that they're obviously very afraid of themselves being meaningless and dying. Right. And so yeah. they, they, you know, slavery is created just to support these men's fantasies. And so do I want 
immortality technology being specifically with those small group of people like not not really <laughs> so i don't know i i think the the one thing that he challenged me on which i am going to think about if i'm going to um kind of steel man his side is that i've had to make peace with death and i've i feel like i've made peace with it and i think it's hard i think it's hard to maybe it's only hard because i was raised thinking that the universe was made for me maybe it wouldn't have been so hard if i started this as a you know that process as a child but yeah you know facing that you're just part of nature and that it's this cycle and you get to just kind of poke your head up and look around and then you're going to die and the process goes on. I feel like I've made peace with that. And when he says that that actually lacks courage because it's accepting what is and not pushing for what could be, that challenged me a little bit. I have to think about that because there is some sense that um, when we, in our kind of collective human uh, imagination some an archetype that shows up over and over is like elves like like in Lord of the Rings but a thousand other things too it's like these immortal creatures and they're like graceful and they're wise and they live these long lives and they have like these gifts that are just superhuman and they live with the earth often they're vegan or vegetarian and they like live with the earth right they're not like um, yeah. doing factory farming right that's never a thing and so we can imagine elves you know existing and just being so much better than what we are and maybe there is something to his statement of how can it be more courageous to just accept death when there's a possibility that we could live like that? And I'm, that's a challenge. That that's mm. that actually really did challenge. I'm gonna have to think about it. Yeah, I, um, I thought he because was because there is something guest, to that. Yeah, no, brilliant guest. I, you know, when you talk about living forever. I'd rather just do the Ted Williams formula, which is cut off my head, cryogenically freeze it, and when the day comes that it can be brought, I can be brought back. Bring me back. Let me see what everything's going on. I'll live mm -hmm. for another hundred years. I'll make enough money somehow that I can freeze my head again and tell people not to bring me back for another thousand or two. <laughs> and I'll just keep that, doing that. Oh, so that would be, be my ideal. If we're talking about ideal. Yeah. Let me be a, a head. Bring me back every hundred years. Give me like a documentary. Catch me up on the story. Yeah. Let me go down for another hundred years. I yeah. just want to know the story. Yeah, I just yeah, want to totally. know how the story ends. That's yeah, the totally. only thing that I'm like frustrated about is like, do we go out when the sun goes like, Oh, it, it's the same thought that stopped Christopher Hitchens. So Christopher Hitchens said that the thought that arrested him was just like, you know, took his breath away was that um, the, whatever species is around on the earth, when the earth die, when the sun goes out and the, the earth dies, will be as far away from where we are now as we are from bacteria. And so could you fathom the species that's going to watch the sun blow up? Yeah. And like, I, I would want to, I would want to know how does it end? Like what, what stupid human pushes a red button? Like, and you know, that would just be funny or does, or the sun or the global warming or what is it? That's the only part where I'm like, Oh, I'm sad. I don't get to see the end of the story, but too, I'm still happy to be a part of it. To bacteria, we are unimaginable. Right. We right? are gods. Yes. And whatever would be that distance from now, it is unimaginable to us. But even worse, because he's right, 
complex, the development of complexity is exponential growth. Mm -hmm. So the distance between us and bacteria and the distance between us and the future, us and the future has exponentially more changes than what bacteria to us did. So you can't even, you can't even imagine the unimaginable, like how unimaginable it is. So I do like his analogy of like reading a book when you're a child and it's like, you know, you could get to a future where you could live you could live as a tree and then you could live as a bat and you could live, you could kind of like link up to all different kinds of consciousness and you could explore and you could become more creative and you could become interplanetary and you could, I mean, there's so many things that you could do if you could continue to, to grow that we couldn't imagine that would make it interesting and not, you know, not, not boring. Um, or not the obituaries would be so much more meaningful to us because <laughs> no one dies except for like Jerry who walked in front of a bus. That would be me. His, I his would transhumanist... die in some stupid way. <laughs> so everybody lives for 812 years except for Jerry died at 62 <laughs> because we walked in front of a bus. And I, I by yeah. the way, Debbie, I just want to acknowledge Debbie in the comments saying that you know you're you're minimizing how people dealing with death would want to snap their fingers and be able to get life back when they're losing a child or something. And I hundred percent agree. I'm not talking about a 40 year old person and their 15 year old kid. I'm talking about being 350 years old and my kids 330 years old. And for me at that point, death would be, or life would be exhausting. Mm. Um, It it almost is now, right? Like Mm -hmm. life's enjoyable, but the difference between enjoying life and not thinking it worth living is a much smaller margin than we think. It doesn't take much to go wrong before you start thinking the other side of that coin. And and hence, when you add hundreds of years to it, yeah, like some another person said, like you couldn't even imagine what a different life than this capitalistic world would look like. But mm. the, the only way I can imagine is that 350 years old is exhausting. At the end of the day, and literally when I went to the transhumanist um, conference, uh, it is this place of optimism, like almost religious optimism of um, what could be. And I guess, and, and there's no reason that my bias would be more right than anyone else's, but I just have so much pessimism in, in the sense that evolution created us to be this thing. We're so, we've talked a hundred times on the podcast about we have biases towards this and we're, we're creating reality in our brain as we're seeing it, right? We're not. And, and there's just so many things that we have to undo that evolution kind of has us be that I just don't have a lot of faith that we're going to be able to handle the kind of jump that he's talking about. Um, I, I just think you would need the technology. You'd be stuck in a catch-22 because it's almost like you need the technology in order to bypass some of these evolutionary um, patterns that humans have that are just not good for us. But then if you do it anyway, I I just don't think that we're going to be able to get there because you would need the technology to change the evolution in order to make it work. But then once you have the technology, then you've already probably blown yourself up. So I'm a little bit too pessimistic to hang out with transhumanists. It's not quite the religion for me, but I do think it's interesting. And it is one of the three, um, at least in this book that I read last week, one of the three kind of emergent religions that are filling the gap 
that organized religion is leaving behind. So it's interesting. Yeah. Ex-Mormon Songbook said, but if you didn't have to worry about money, would it still be exhausting? And I actually would argue it might be more exhausting. And here's what I mean. If we humans aren't fighting to survive, if we feel safe, secure, and we have we have our time is ours, we get to choose what to do with it. We get to choose what we're going to fill our day with. There is some evidence that indicates that we humans are actually less happy, less content when we have the ability to feel completely safe and have the, all the time of the day at our disposal. So the fight to survive, whether it's getting up in the morning, going to work or whether it's uh, yeah. fending off the lion on the African Serengeti. So yeah, you rarely to, find, de you rarely to... find depression in those, in those instances, you rarely find depression uh, of that magnitude in places where people are fighting every day to get the next meal. Yeah. And it's almost like you'd have to start using AI to hijack how our brain gives us, you know, serotonin and, and dopamine and all of that because you'd have to bypass like, Hey, you know, where it feels really good to be in a tribe to where it feels really good to be in a cult. We're going to like dial that down. We're going to like dial down the dopamine that you feel when you get into a cult to override that. And maybe we start, you know, being more in charge of how our brain gives out dopamine because our brain gives out dopamine when you are running from the lion dopamine. <laughs> good job. You ran away from the lion. Tell people about it yeah. anyway. So you'd have to start hijack. So I can't even imagine then, if it would be ethical to live forever, because I can't imagine nature not being a, a cycle of death and rebirth that I'm a part of that I've accepted. So my ethics would change based on however the nature of reality, the nature of nature itself changes. So I don't know. Interesting. He's a really interesting guy. Very often he'll start talking tech and I'll be lost like like that, like I'll see like, okay, Lincoln, you've gone where I cannot follow. Um, but yeah, he's an interesting guy and it's an interesting movement, very popular in Silicon Valley kind of types. This is a Silicon Valley kind of tech religion where we can do all that religion promised to do, but we can do it with technology. And that's a really yeah. interesting idea. You, you talking about like curing depression by being able to push a button and have dopamine run through your brain. I mean, again, I've said it on the podcast, I've done MDMA a few times and um, it's an incredible feeling along those lines. I mean, everything about the world is beautiful. And so if you could replicate that once a week and then have kind of the echo of it, stay with you for three or four days. Or you can even like time it to what you want. Like I want to be a runner. And so every time you run, you can just choose. You can so almost set it running. for your own brain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like You're right. Cause which, if I go to the gym and work out and take care of myself, if I could feel they that say it takes, they, Yeah. So, so you do get after effects from going to the gym, but it takes about a year to, for it to click in. Right. For the first year that you start going to the gym or running, you're not getting a runner's high. It just hurts and you want to yeah. die and it's yeah. stupid. And then after a while, you get it afterwards. And then if you keep going, you'll get it during the workout. So like people will wait lift so, for so long that they can start getting that runner's high or whatever during their workout. And then they're the kind of person who loves to exercise. But if you could bypass that, hey, like that year where you're not getting any dopamine and it just hurts and you could just kind of bypass that. We're like, wow, and I went on a run hurt. and I love everyone <laughs> and everything's amazing and it's beautiful. 
you know, you could start hijacking what you want your goals to be. And instead of us being kind of subject to how our brains give chemicals when it wants to, based on evolution, you could kind of start to control that. But then also your own reward system, you could make your own reward system. You could also just like be high all the time and be asleep (laughs) and high and dreaming all of the time, which happens in, which I'm sure that would happen too. <laughs> oh, I'm sort of know, happy man. that I'll be exiting this planet sometime <laughs> in the next 50 years, probably. Yeah, it is weird to have. I do feel like in some ways I, I pulled out some old pictures my kids wanted to see. And it was almost like explaining to my kids, like, I grew up on Mars. Like, it's this world that they don't even recognize. So in some ways, we have had just a huge tech jump in our lifetimes where we grew up in a world that was very different than the, the world that kids are growing up now in, which has been true for every generation a little bit, but now it's like a lot, um, a lot more of a gap between kind of the kids and the grandparents. So and it's interesting time to be alive. We're going into an age where robots will do at least a significant portion uh, of human work and we may be heading to an age where robots can do most of it. Yeah. Um, and, and at that I, point that changes yeah. the whole world too. That's, that's interesting. I mean, I don't, whenever I go to McDonald's or something like that and I see someone who's working there and it's like an eight hour day, like, ugh, like um, that's not, that's rough. You know, I want robots doing that job because I don't think a human should have to do that all day, every day. Cause I think that that's just a shit job. Um, and so like they have those automated, they have an automatic McDonald's now where it's hundred percent robots. There's not a human inside. I think that's very interesting. Maybe the day again, will come where robots can clean the LDS bathrooms once a week. <laughs> so that way the members don't have to do it anymore. I don't think that'll ever happen. You know, they want, they want you to create character or something. Yeah. They say something. That. So most jobs should be done by robots and that's interesting, but I, but I do wonder that the people, you know, there will be a time where people can start playing with their genes and their children's genes and their homes have robots that clean up after them and do everything. And then the poor are still flipping burgers at McDonald's and, or the robots have taken over this job. So now the poor have no way to access that technology. That's what mm-hmm. I, I don't see any way around that. I don't see any way around that because you would have to have the technology to change evolution in order to get our brains to like, not um, have it benefit the few over the many. Like that's just, that's just nature. That's just yeah. social hierarchy that's in our brains. So I don't know. It's interesting. We'll keep, we'll keep watching this religion. I mean, I think it is acting like a religion for most of the people that are in it. Um, and it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. It doesn't seem like a high demand fundamentalist religion. So I'm, I'm happy true. to watch it unfold. It doesn't seem like it imposes on anybody that they take any harm on or trauma. Yeah. It seems like it's more of an intellectual way to frame the world and what the possibilities are for the future and how to think about the future in a way that you actually uh, contribute to a positive outcome. 
I do love the idea, like, would I rather have an optimist transhumanist who's like, we can become gods. And I'm like, okay, whatever you say. Um, would I rather have that than someone is who's like, I am sure that Jesus is coming again and making it all better. Like, yeah, I'll take the, the optimist transhumanist. At least that person is trying to create heaven on earth rather than just living for an imagined heaven. At least they're imagining something and working on it here. Um, so yeah, I, I'd rather that over kind of optimistic religion that everything's going to get better just by kind of sitting and praying about it. So yeah, that part I'm still is trying good. to figure out how we're in the 11th and a half hour and the beginning of an ongoing restoration. Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm so tired. I'm just trying to be I'm a so tired. smart ass at this point. <laughs> I'm so tired. And the more you study Christianity, the more like every person, every Christian person is like, this is it. From the very beginning, like the second Jesus died at the time period, it was like, all right, he's coming. This is it. He's coming again. And like, you can't, you can't do that for, t for two centuries. Like you got to let it go, guys. It's not coming. Yeah. <sighs> no, it's not. And, and you can see like in our religion, Mormonism, again, what I pointed out is this idea that El, you know, President Nelson just four years ago, five years ago, told the youth of a church in a fireside that we are in the 11th and a half hour. And then three years later says we're in the beginning of an ongoing restoration. And you can't be halfway done and in the beginning of something at the same time. You can't. <laughs> yeah, it's it's tough. You can get there, but you have to, you know, do some gymnastics. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, All right. I'm I'm gonna let you go. You're yeah. amazing. Great job putting this together. Lincoln Cannon was a great guest, and I really enjoyed uh, what he had to add to to his expertise on transhumanism. Yeah. Interesting one. All right. Thanks, Bill. Have a good week. Take it easy. Bye, everybody. This has been another almost awakened.